if you're joining us here last year, we're glad to have you with us as well. And uh, we've been celebrating the Advent season, thinking about Christ and Jesus coming into the world and celebrating that. And we're, we're, gonna, we're going to continue in that theme here this morning. And we have a pretty a special Sunday, uh, Sunday service today. And so it'll be a little bit different than what our normal uh, sort of order of service looks like. Uh, but uh, we think you'll enjoy it. We have a couple of things that are a little bit different for us this morning. And so uh, we're just going to go into it. And so uh, to begin our time, I'm going to uh, invite uh, the Garlandsons to come up, uh, Daniel and Kelly.
the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd my flock with the justice. Sorry, that was Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. The passage in Ezekiel is rich with blessings. <clears throat> for the sheep of the Lord's pasture, God will provide safety, rescue, food for nourishment, rest, healing, and restoration. As wonderful as these promises are, they are not the most important truths of Ezekiel's passage. The most important words of the passage are the words that are most repeated, which are, I will. In a passage that is only five verses long, twelve times the Lord says, I will. You might consider taking a highlighter and marking those I wills. Those two words are absolutely staggering. They not only communicate what the sovereign Lord will do for his scattered sheep, they will also proclaim a divine intent and personal action. Who will rescue the people of God? Not an angel, but the Lord. Who will make a sheep lie down in green pastures? Not a king, but the sovereign Lord. Who will protect and bind up the broken people of the Lord? God himself. A magnificent work is left to no other. The sovereign Lord will see to it to uh, himself that his people are brought together under the cover of his grace. When Christ Jesus came into the world, God was not delegating his promise in Ezekiel to another. God, in the person of his son, took on human flesh to fulfill his promises made in Ezekiel. When Philip asked Jesus to see the heavenly father, Jesus said to him, it is to see the Father. Jesus likens his ministry to that of a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and has come back to bring those <clears throat> has come to bring back those sheep that have been scattered. Jesus is most likely taking the imagery from Ezekiel in the word of the Father. During Advent, we read the promises in Ezekiel and consider them faithful, correction, fulfilled in the person of the Son of God who is named Emmanuel and means God with us. Can you please join me with prayer? Father, thank you so much for uh, your goodness, your power, your majesty, Father. Lord, you say that you will. Thank you that we can take that um, in an entirely different light than we take that from a human. It's easy to, to hear someone say, I will, uh, from human lips, and expect maybe or maybe not. But Lord, from you, we can expect 100% complete fulfillment. With complete confidence, we can, we can rest and rely on you. Lord, you will bring back 
those who are scattered. You will bind up wounds. You will provide. And Lord, you have provided your son to us. Thank you for your incredible work. Please draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name. special this morning to uh, as, as our call to worship this morning. Amen. Let's continue worship this morning. Receive her. 
morning that you may draw our affections to Jesus during this Advent season, Lord. And as, as we await the coming of our Savior, Lord, may we honor him as our Lord and King, giving him thanks for the gift of salvation. God, direct our focus this morning onto you. Lead us now, Lord, in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. At this time, uh, we won't be, we'll be dismissed until then. What a joy uh, it was to see uh, precious kiddos come and, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm so thankful uh, for each of them. Uh, so thankful for, I know that it's, uh, I don't know from personal experience, but I imagine it's, uh, it's a lot of, uh, it's a hard work. Uh, so thankful for, uh, for Rhonda and just leading that and for those who have uh, assisted and helping our kids get together and rehearse and play, and uh, for the parents as well, uh, and sort of keeping up with their uh, their singing and rehearsal. It's uh, it was wonderful. Um, just going to say, I transition into a time of prayer, a uh, brief time of prayer. We're going to pray for the Garlandsons this morning. I pray for the sermon as well, and then we'll just open up uh, to our today's passage. So, if you would, um, fire has with me as we spend uh, some time in prayer. Father, what a joy it is uh, to come and to worship Jesus Christ, who is our King. Jesus, who's been given unto us. Jesus, who came in the same manner that we come into the world. This Jesus, who lived like we do, and yet was without sin. We thank you for this King, who is our precious Savior. And it is to you, Lord, that we lift up all glory and praise and honor, and we lift up our prayers. Lord, we pray this morning for the Garlington's. Lord, we're so thankful for the short time that we do have with them. Father, we pray that you might be a lamp unto their feet and a guide unto their path. We pray, Lord, that you would open and close the right doors. We pray specifically, Lord, that you might open a door for their visas so that they might transition well and that they might, can, might go ahead in their work that you have called them to. Lord, we pray that you might fill their hearts with great anticipation and excitement, not necessarily for a change because of a change of scenery or change of location, change of culture and all these different changes, but for the excitement of being able to, to serve the Lord Jesus and the calling that you have placed over their lives. Lord, prepare them for the work ahead. May they go into this next of their lives with great faith, expecting great things from God, and believing, Lord, that you are able to do much more than we can 
even ask for. Fill them with your grace. Give them peace. Provide for their every need in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would help them as parents as they help, their, as they help Louisa to transition well, that they may communicate well, that they might be in harmony with one another. We pray that you might also guard their marriage and protect them from the schemes of the evil one. And help us, Lord, to continue to, to besiege heaven on their behalf, praying constantly for them, for their welfare, for the prospering of their, the work that you have called them to. We pray for just these next uh, week or week and a half that they have, Lord, that they might, uh, that they, that they might be encouraged and strengthened and it might be a blessing to them. So we thank you, Lord, for them. And we just look forward to all that you are going to do in and through them. And now, Father, we just lift up this time that we have as we consider your word, as we consider Jesus our King. Lord, help us to receive your word. Help me, Lord, to communicate your word in a way that is honest and truthful and consistent with what your word says. Bless us and keep us with the remainder of the time that we have here together this morning and that we may continue to honor you and worship you as a king who's come into the world to save his people from their sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, You're also welcome to... Uh, Follow along. The words will be up on the screen behind me. There's also a Bible. should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you as well. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The children's song uh, that they welcomed us to participate uh, in is a song of of coming to worship. It's a song that is... uh, that is driven by a response, a response of coming, of drawing near, and to worship. It's an invitation to angels to come and worship the king. It's an invitation to shepherds to come and worship the king. It's an invitation to the saints to come and worship the king. And that is why we celebrate the Advent season. That is what we give our attention to. Coming and worshiping the Christ, the King who has been born into the world to save his people from their sins. It's the essence of Advent. And this is also the center of uh, today's message. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. 
And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew's Gospel is a book that is very much concerned with kings and kingdoms. One of the central themes, in fact, of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven and the king who is the king of that kingdom of heaven. From the very beginning in Matthew chapter 1, we read of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, pointing to the fact that he comes from a royal lineage. And then immediately we come into chapter 2, where we hear these strange men from a foreign country coming to worship this king who's been born in Judea. And following that, we hear of John the Baptist, a kind of town crier, a a herald for the king, whose primary task is to prepare the way for the king. And then immediately following that, we hear of this newborn king, now fully grown, and his experiencing temptation as a king. And then we get into Matthew chapter 5 where we read of this king's first sermon, a sermon that is very much concerned with the kingdom of heaven. What is this kingdom of heaven like? What are the citizens of this kingdom like? And further on in the book of Matthew, we continue to hear about this theme of the king and the kingdom. When it comes to who are the ones who will be part of the kingdom and who are the ones who will not be? Jesus himself says in his sermon, Matthew seven twenty one, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or who says to me, God, God, will enter kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that is the one that you can expect to be part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is described as a hidden treasure that a man found and in his joy sells all that he has to purchase the field where the hidden treasure is. The kingdom of heaven is described as a man searching fine pearls and he finds the one pearl of great value and so he goes back and he sells everything that he has to purchase this one pearl of great value. The central message of this king and this kingdom is found in Matthew 3, 2. And that message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is in your midst. So Matthew in his gospel wastes no time going from genealogy to his kingship to the message of the king. And in this passage, we read of a prophecy given long ago there in chapter 2, verse 6, and it tells us what kind of king this is. It says, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we immediately see that this is a, a shepherd ruler. 
this is a ruler, and what is his manner of rule? It is shepherding. He's shepherd-like. And to understand, or have a clearer picture of what a shepherd is like, or what kind of rule this king, or God, that this, that this king is characterized by, you might look, for example, Psalm 23. Right? It's familiar to many Christians, familiar also to many non-Christians as well. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. Right? He restores my soul. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the kind of rule that governs this king that has been born into the world. And we look to other examples as well, such as the Gospel of John, where we see much more pointedly the, the shepherding manner of this ruler, where it tells us there that this shepherd is one who leaves the nine to nine who has been gathered to go and seek out the, the one that's been lost. This is the one who goes into the fields and goes into the world and brings back all of the wandering sheep. That he's not like a hireling that immediately runs away when it, there is danger, but this is a shepherd that will remain with his sheep and even go so far as to laying down his life for his sheep. So this is a gentle ruler. And gentleness is not a weakness. When it comes to rule and authority, right, we need people to govern with rule and authority. We need people in positions of power. But it's the exercise of that power that oftentimes goes wrong. You might have somebody who is on one side of the spectrum where is weak, has the power and authority, but does not exercise that authority and that power in a way that he should, where authority is kind of like a sword, somebody with a sword, and there's someone in danger, you want that person to take out the sword and protect you. But some rulers are too weak to take out the sword, and that leads to a ruination of a people. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have some with authority and power, but they still do not know how to wield that authority and power. They do not know how to wield that sword and still end up to the ruination of his own people. You need someone in the middle, in the balance, and that's what gentleness is for. Gentleness is not a weakness, but gentleness is an ability to be able to steward one's authority and power in a way that is profitable and of service to their people. You might think of the story of, of mice and men, a story that most of us are probably familiar with, where Lenny, a caring guy, sweet guy, but strong as an ox, incredibly, incredibly strong, and he does not know how to wield his strength in a gentle manner. He ends up hurting things and even hurting people. We have here a description, a very short description of what this king is like, has been born into the world. He is a shepherd ruler. He's a ruler who is governed or characterized by a gentleness. He knows how to wield his strength. This is the kind of king that dominates Matthew's gospel and upon which the Bible is centered. And so this king is born, and then we have the wise men who come to worship this king. And with regards to these wise men, we don't know very much about them. The scriptures do not describe to us what exactly they're like, what are their customs, what are their traditions, what are their cultures, where exactly they're from. They're complete strangers, according to what we read in the scriptures. But all we know is that 
They come from some faraway land to worship someone. What we do know about them is very important, and that is they have insider information. They have this, this truth that no one else seems to know. Not even King Herod does not even know. There are some who know, like the religious leaders and authorities of Jerusalem, but they seem to care very little about this information. These strangers come into a land that is not their own, and they come directly to the king, a king who reasonably expects that they're coming to worship him. And to his surprise, they're coming to worship a different king, a king in your own kingdom. That's what they're saying. Here, about a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time considering the the word worship in the scriptures, and what does this word mean? And oftentimes the word can mean lying prostrate on the floor. It can mean touching one's forehead to the ground. That worship isn't just singing. Worship isn't just lifting one's hands. But worship, more importantly, is a disposition of the heart. It is paying homage, it is paying reverence, it is paying due respect to one who is worthy of honor and glory and respect. And this is what these wise men, or magi, come to do. And as part of their worship, as part of bowing down to this king, they also present gifts. And we don't know what their gifts mean. Some people suggest that the presenting of gold points to the fact that this is a king, pointing to the royal status of this newborn child, that the frankincense being a kind of incense points to the fact that this king who has been born into the world is, is deity. He is some kind of God, taken from the Old Testament and the burning of incense as a form of worship to a deity. And the myrrh, being a kind of embalming oil that perhaps pointed to the fact that this newborn king, that this deity king, is one day going to die. Who knows whether or not the wise men had that kind of understanding and if that's the reason why they presented these particular gifts. Perhaps they knew more than we are led to believe, maybe. But what matters most is that they came and responded and that response was worship. And this entire narrative, verses 1 through 12, is driven by many responses. Response after response after response. The wise men come in response to the fact that a newborn king has come into the world. Herod, in response to this news, brings about the religious teachers and the scribes and gathers them together. And they ask them, what are, you what are these guys talking about? In response to this news, Herod becomes troubled. In response to this news, all Jerusalem becomes troubled. In response to the star miraculously appearing and leading the wise men to where this king has been born, they come and they worship. It is driven by a response. You have positive responses, glorious responses, but you also have some negative responses. And particularly striking is King Herod's response. Herod is a king of the world. 
not in the sense that he is the, the king of the world, but he is a king of the world. He is a king that comes from the world, that he is a worldly king, that he is an earthly king, that he is a king representative of the kingdoms of the world. And King Herod, historically, according to writings, he's accomplished many things with his power and his authority. But he was also a very troubled man, deeply troubled. One example of his troubled personality and conscience and inner disposition is seen in the fact that he forbid any large gatherings of people because he feared that people might be conspiring against him. In his severe paranoia, he even executed his own subjects, even his own family members, including sons, and even his favorite wife, all because he believed that they were conspiring against him. Upon his deathbed, he gave one last order to his soldiers, and that was to go to these particular individuals, these particular groups that he thought might be celebrating the fact that he was going to die. Weak men with power will always want to flex their authority muscles, especially when someone else comes on the scene who holds similar or even greater power than they do. So King Herod was deeply troubled, and the passage also says that all Jerusalem was troubled with King Herod. Why would they be troubled? Because they understood that King Herod was a deeply troubled man. They knew of his paranoia, that the fact that this newborn king has been born into the world, that this news has come about, has sort of stirred the calming the calm waters, and now they feared, like, what's this going to happen? The king now is in a bad mood. What's going to happen to us? What's he going to do? You can understand the response, given King Herod's paranoia and deeply troubled personality, but it's still a shocking response because this is their king. This is a king born for you. This is a king born to be your savior. Herod gathers all the religious leaders to try it out, saying, what are these wise men, these strange men talking about? They point to the scriptures that a ruler, a shepherd ruler is to be born in a small town of Bethlehem. But even they don't care enough to travel with the wise men and visit this king and worship this king. Later on, We'll really come to understand why. John twelve forty three makes clear that the religious authorities loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They would go on to reject this newborn king because he was not a king that they expected. He was not a king in their image. He was not a king that was going to protect their own personal glory. they would go on and reject this king. As I said earlier, Matthew 
is a book about kings and kingdom, and so is the story of Advent. Advent is about kings and kingdoms. We see here the kingdom of man represented in King Herod's kingdom. And the pursuit of kingdoms and establishing of kingdoms is as old as the beginning. From the very beginning, we read in the scriptures that man sought to make a name for himself, and so they would build a tower that would attempt to reach the heavens itself, to make a name for themselves, to build a city for themselves, to build a kingdom, but it was a kingdom in the form of man. Kingdoms are not a bad thing. They're not, it's not a bad thing to pursue the establishing of kingdoms as the ground that oftentimes is wrong in establishing of kingdoms. When it comes to comparing the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of men, there's a vast difference between the two. And it begins at its, at its foundation. Augustine, in his book, City of God, points to this vast difference between these two kingdoms, or as he calls them, cities. He says, we see then that the two cities, or two kingdoms, kingdom of man, kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching to the point of contempt of God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men. The latter finds its glory in God. There's the foundation. One is driven by love of self. The other one is driven by love of God. And that produces very different kingdom citizens. Jesus himself, as he began his ministry, began with the message of the kingdom, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Why does he say that? Because the king has arrived. The king is in your midst. The king has come, and so now it is time to turn your attention to the king. More than your attention, turn your lives to the king. Turn your heart to the king. When the Roman Empire acquired new territory, they would make every effort to make that new acquired territory as much as possible as Rome. Changing culture, religion, traditions, education. I mean, they would even go on and establish Roman bathhouses in the new territories that they acquired. Why would they go through so much effort? Because they wanted Caesar to feel at home wherever he went. Jesus, as a shepherd ruler, has come into the world any means to establish, and the scriptures tell us that he will one day return and seeks to establish his kingdom upon the world, to form it into his own image, so that wherever he goes, it is representative of him and he feels at home. Revelation 6.16, 6, speaking about the kingdoms and the kings and rulers of kingdoms in the world, when they behold the second coming of Jesus Christ, they fall down and they are in fear. And they even go so far as to call the mountains and rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
two words there that probably don't belong in the same sentence. That is wrath and lamb. A lamb is the last thing that you would expect to be wrathful. Perhaps a lion, but not a lamb. But I think it gets to point, it points to the fact of the dual nature of King Jesus, that he is gentle, that he is shepherd-like, but he also comes in fury, that he will come in fury against the kingdoms and the kings that refuse to submit to his lordship. The story of Advent is a story of kings and kingdoms, and it's also a story of warring or competing allegiances. In Psalm chapter 2, a psalm very much concerned with kings and kingdoms. It says there, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It goes on to say, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God has set his king on the throne, and this king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the passage warns all kings and rulers of the earth and their respective kingdoms, kiss the sun, or reconcile yourself to the sun. Make friends with the sun, or else you will perish. For his wrath is quickly kindled. On the other hand, blessed are all who take refuge in this king. It's not just about kings and kingdoms and larger kingdoms and great and powerful kings and rulers of the earth. This is also very much concerned with the smaller kingdoms. The kingdoms that are represented by each and every single person here in this room, the kingdom of your lives, the kingdom of your hearts. In each of your lives, you function as a kind of king or queen where you govern your own life, you establish your own rules, you pursue your own passions, you give yourself to the things that you desire to give yourself to. When it comes to those smaller kingdoms represented in every single heart, man and woman, the question is, will you surrender your kingdom to the greater kingdom of King Jesus? And will you do so before the coming of his wrath and terror? But before the coming of his terror and wrath, he commands all men everywhere, gently and lovingly, submit the kingdom of your life to mine. And he does this even this very morning, gently, shepherdly, and lovingly. You have yet to submit your kingdom to mine. Submit it today. How does he speak 
so gently? How does he speak so lovingly? How does he compel you this morning to submit your kingdom to the kingdom of Christ? Let me put it to you this way. Someone had once told the story of this ancient king, this ancient kingdom. And this kingdom was characterized by peace. The people loved their king. There was so much peace, in fact, in the land that for years there wasn't a single crime in the entire kingdom. And then one day, one of the king's servants comes into the king's throne room, kneels before him and says, My lord, a crime has been committed. There's a thief who's been stealing from others, but we don't know who it is. And those who are there to hear these words were shocked, just as shocked as a king was. The king almost didn't know what to say because it's been so long since it's been a crime in the entire kingdom. And finally he says, I want you to find the thief, and when you find him, bring him to me, and he will receive ten lashes of the whip. Those who heard were shocked. It's been quite some time since anybody has been whipped for committing a crime. So the servant goes out, a week goes by, the servant comes before the king, and in dismay he says, my lord, I'm sorry to say, but the thief has not been caught. And the robbery has only gotten worse. We continue to receive reports of people saying that their things have been stolen from them in the middle of the night. The king is beginning to get angry. He says, I want you to go and continue to look for the thief. And when you find him, bring him to me and he will receive 25 lashes of the whip. The people who heard this are shocked. Can anybody survive 25 lashes of the whip? The servant goes out. Another week goes by. The servant returns. He says, my Lord, we have yet to find the thief. And he still continues to rampage in your kingdom, stealing from your citizens. The king is now is, is in fury. He says, go and find that thief and bring him to me immediately, and he will receive 50 lashes of the whip. And at that point, people are like, nobody can survive 50 lashes of the whip. Finally, the servant returns. He says, my king, we found the thief. The king says, bring the thief to me. A large crowd gathers, but it splits down the middle as the soldiers come bearing the person bound in chains. And everyone is absolutely surprised because the person who's been thieving in the kingdom is not the person they expected because the person they behold before them is someone who is frail and small. And this person is, is crying uncontrollably and is shaking for fear of the king's wrath. And when the person comes close enough for the king to recognize to his utter shock and dismay and to a wound to his own heart, he realizes that the one who's been thieving in his own kingdom is none other than his aged mother. And when people realize this, they question and they ask themselves, 
is our wonderful and merciful king going to pardon his dear mother? Or is our righteous king going to do what he said he would do and give this thief what she deserves? The king commands one of the soldiers to bring the whipping post. They bind the king's mother to the whipping post. They tear out her back garment to expose her back. The soldier grabs the whip and he looks to the king. And the king says, proceed. Soldier, and you can tell on his face, he's reluctant to follow those orders, but he obeys those orders. He takes the whip and he brings it back and suddenly the king says, halt. the great relief of everyone who was there, but it didn't last very long. The king rises from his throne, removes his royal crown, places it on the royal seats, removes his royal tunic, exposes his back, goes to his mother, and covers her with his large body, exposing his back to the soldier with the whip, and he looks to the soldier and he says, Proceed. Jesus Christ, the King who has been born into the world, came into the world to receive the lashes of the wrath of God for your sake. He did not deserve it. But you and I did because of our sins against a wonderful and loving and holy and righteous God. We deserved judgment. We deserved wrath. We deserved to be tied to the whipping post. We deserved to be crucified to the cross. But instead, this king calls all men everywhere to submit their kingdoms to him by dying on the cross and taking the wrath of God for our sake. And he rose again from the dead three days later. And he calls all men everywhere. He calls all you today, if you have yet to make that decision, to submit the kingdom of your life, to his kingdom, to following him, and to do so now, before he comes, because the scriptures promise that he is coming again one day, and he's not going to call gently and lovingly, but will call, or not, rather not call anymore, but he will come in wrath and fury against all those kingdoms that have not submitted to his lordship. This is a story of competing kingdoms, of warring allegiances, and also of very different citizens. King Herod, upon his death, in his last words, commanded the execution of those that he thought might celebrate his death. And King Jesus, in his final words, prays to the Father, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the king who's come and be born into the world. 
This is the king who was perfect. This is the king who gave his life. But the only question that remains is, will you surrender your kingdom and your life to King Jesus? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we look forward to your, the day. As citizens of your kingdom through faith, we look forward to the day that you will establish your kingdom upon the face of the earth. You mean to make this world your home. You mean to make it into your image. And we as your citizens will be glad to receive our king. Lord, but until that time comes, we pray that you might continue to establish your kingdom in the hearts of men. That you would establish your kingdom in the lives of those who have yet to surrender their kingdoms to your lordship. We pray, Lord, for a great salvation. We pray that even many here who have yet to do so might submit to your lordship. We pray that even amongst our own family members or dearest friends, that they too might submit the kingdom of their lives to King Jesus. Would you do this, Lord, for your great glory and name? Lord, and would you help us, as those who have submitted our kingdoms to you, help us to live in a manner that reflects your glory and honor, and help us to be faithful heralds of your kingdom to all those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand uh, in response of uh, today's message. Let us sing uh, once again together for his glory. Amen.
Father, it is an honor to call Christ our King. <clears throat> Father, may we, may we all humbly worship 
our newborn King Jesus. Father, you have openly shown us your love for your creation. Redeeming us through the forgiveness of our sins. You, O oh God, provided us a way. You provided us a savior, a shepherd, a king. May we take refuge in Christ, our King. As we heard today, surrendering our lives and fully submitting under your lordship, your kingdom, Father. Long live Christ, our King. Who took the penalty of sin upon himself. Father, you are worthy. Worthy of all honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. His benediction comes from 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a good day, church. You're dismissed.